Hi guys, welcome to the Revive Stronger podcast. I'm your host as always, Steve Hall, and today I am joined by Jordan Peters. I think the majority of our audience will really know who Jordan is. He is kind of like the big bodybuilder over in the UK, um, for lack of a better kind of description of Jordan. But to give you a bit of background, he is obviously a competitive bodybuilder. Um, if you can't see, he is huge behind the camera. Um, very, very big guy. Uh, he has a master's in physiology. Uh, he's also a very experienced coach. If anyone's followed Jordan, you've probably seen all the different clients that he's helped. Uh, but he's even worked with people from the GB shot putters, premiership rugby players, professional strongmen, world champion powerlifters, and of course, bodybuilders, which is kind of your bread and butter, right, Jordan? It is, buddy. Um, my, my preference is working with bodybuilders. That's I, I would say that's where I'm most competent. Um, I now tend to kind of actually send inquiries on elsewhere when I get them kind of from from rugby field, I, I will then send them elsewhere. And the same for strongman, I send them elsewhere. Um, mostly because like as, as my time becomes more limited, I know that I'm more of a specialist bodybuilding coach. So that's probably where I need to be focusing my attention. I can see that you kind of become, you don't want to be a jack of all trades. You want to become specialist in that niche area and sure. you're doing an incredibly good job of that. <laughs> Thank you, buddy. And actually something I wanted to kick off with because I've heard a lot of your content and I follow you and something I think you would be incredibly great to talk to about is just kind of why you're so posh, passionate, sorry, about bodybuilding, kind of what led you to the sport? Why do you love it to this day? What are the things that kind of drive you and kind of drive you to be a, a coach still? Um, that's, that's an interesting question. Um, I'm bodybuilding is more where my passion has been directed because I'm, I'm passionate about progress. That's actually what I'm passionate about. Um, and I'm passionate about helping people as well. Um, so then that was always going to manifest itself in one direction or another. And it just so happened to end up being bodybuilding, I think. Um, because I, I used to be a fairly decent rugby player and then I didn't have my professional contract renewed. And at that point, all I really knew how to do well was lift weights. So then I thought, okay, well, let's run with this and let's see where this goes. And it was an incredible challenge and I loved it. And I was like, okay, right. This is something that I really, really want to carry on doing. I don't want to try to, to move into another sport. Um, I, I think that this can be something that I'm good at. And then from, from playing rugby and, and learning how to communicate with people, how to motivate people, um, how to always get the best out of an individual and knowing that it takes tactile approaches in the way that one person might respond to one type of communication and another might respond to another. That then actually enabled me to become a fairly good coach pretty quickly because um, I worked out how to basically – get people to do what I wanted them to do from a coaching perspective. And and then that just, just snowballed really. Um, I then went on to do my master's in physiology as I became more passionate about just learning and getting a greater understanding. And then that's kind of led me to where I am now. And are you still working towards your PhD? I know that was, I've seen that, that written. That isn't, it, that is certainly a goal. Mm -hmm. it, it really is. But, um, Right now, I would say that kind of my passion has been directed more in a, in a, in a business kind of progress. Um, obviously, we have the member site that is the largest in the in the country. 
And then I have now launched the supplement range. And then we have 15 sponsored athletes now. And it's, it's, that's kind of where my attention is. I think that once I'm done, so to speak, with competitive bodybuilding myself, then that's when I will fully delve back into academia. Um, because the, the year that I did my master's, I really actually struggled to be a good bodybuilder that year. And mm-hmm. um, that was, that was the only year since I very first competed that I didn't make it on stage just because juggling that with trying to compete was just so hard. It was, it was a lot harder than I thought it would be. Um, so I know that if I'm going to commit myself to a PhD, I need to have that as my kind of sole focus. No, I, I completely respect that. And if I was, if you were a client, you're coming to me and you're like, Steve, I'm doing this PhD, but I want to compete in bodybuilding. I'd be like, yeah, I think you should be better off waiting. You know, you go kind of brain dead when you become yeah. a competitive bodybuilder. Yeah, it's, it's, it's hard to juggle everything. Like um, at the moment, even now I'm, I'm thinking to myself, okay, I'm struggling to juggle my business goals with then my own competitive bodybuilding goals. Right. Um, because I find myself becoming more, I, I'm, I'm quite an obsessive person. Um, and once I, as you can probably tell, like it has manifested itself in, in the bodybuilding. But um, at the moment now, just I'm so intrigued by learning how to grow a business. And that's kind of something that right now has my, has my attention pretty, yeah. pretty big. And to give, I guess, the audience, but also myself a bit of background about kind of where you learn about bodybuilding, kind of to grow muscle. And obviously you've got a huge amount of education on the member site, kind of where did that come from? And before I let you answer, it's just reminded me of the fact the first time I've actually ever met you or at least put, I saw eyes on you and you wouldn't have known I was like someone, I don't know, tiny little guy. And um, this was Brad <laughs> Schoenfeld when he came over to the UK for the first time and yes. presented. I vividly yes. remember the huge guy eating out of Tupperware. Um, yeah. So it was obviously Brad I, I- has had some influence there. I enjoyed that seminar. I do remember asking Brad quite a few questions that yeah. he didn't have answers to, though. Um, he was like, oh, we've not done research for that yet. We've not done research yeah. for that. Because um, obviously I've been obsessed with understanding the balance between training volume, intensity, um, and, and frequency for a very long time. It's something that I've, um, I've been really – that's why I went to that seminar. And, um, yeah, Brad kind of knows his stuff on that, which was, which was kind of cool. But in terms of kind of my knowledge, so I, I started lifting weights when I was 12. Um, and my very first weights coach was at the time the GB weightlifting coach. His name is Keith Morgan, and he coached out of Crystal Palace Weightlifting Center. And that was the very first introduction for me to lifting a weight ever. It was with a GB coach, and he coached me for two years. Um, so that's why I'm a good deadlifter, and I can pull really well with different types of pulls from the floor. That's why like my snatch grip work is is pretty good because I did two years of just perfect work with him. Uh, we weren't allowed to lift it, like in any way where our form would break down. Like, so it was just kind of constant repetition of reinforcing perfect form. Um, so I had a really fortunate start to weightlifting basically. So I knew how to move without even realizing that I knew how yeah. to move. Because like, as a 12 year old, 13 year old, you don't understand what you're being taught at the time. And it wasn't until I got to the age of 16 where I, I was then, I'd moved from Harlequins to Wasps, but the strength and conditioning coaches were like, who the fuck taught you to deadlift like this? And I was like, well, I've been doing this since I was 12. So um, I was really lucky. And then whilst I was at Wasps again, I had amazing strength and conditioning coaches. Um, And 
because I really enjoyed being in the gym. I, I formed a really close relationship with the strength coaches and I was just constantly asking them questions. Why have you programmed this on this day? Why is this in this way? Why are we doing this many steps? Why, why are we doing this many reps? Like I would, I was the only player that was fascinated by just understanding the programming. Like none of the other players gave a shit. They just came in, they did what they did and they left. But as I would look at the sheet and I was just like, why are we doing this? I want to know why we're doing this. Um, so I learned a lot there. And then once I was like 17, 18, I then just became obsessed with reading on the internet. Just I, I, every forum that I could find that had good information on, I would just read and read and read. Um, there was a particular forum called Intense Muscle that was uh, basically the home of like Dante Trudell, Ken Skip Hill, uh, Dr. Scott Stevenson. And that's where I kind of became introduced to dog, dog crap training, right. DC style training which is kind of like a low volume, high frequency, high intensity training style, like training at full body three times a week. Um, I'd already been doing that work whilst I was at Wasps. So that's how I'd always, always ever trained was basically either upper lower splits or full body splits. But it was only when once I started to read DC training that I really, again, fully understood the relationship between volume, intensity and frequency. Um, and then from there, I obviously went to Loughborough to do undergrad in, um, in, in sport and exercise science. I didn't really, I would say, take anything from that degree that was useful in terms of bodybuilding. Like Loughborough is an incredible university, but the, the way that they educate you certainly wasn't geared towards right. understanding or becoming a better bodybuilder. Like if I, if I could redo the undergrad again, I think I could take a lot more from it. Um, but I probably wasn't of the, I probably didn't know which career path at that point I was certainly going to go down. Um, cause I did my first bodybuilding show whilst I was in my first year. Um, and that was pretty much unheard of. I think, but yeah. everyone thought it was just weird yeah. <laughs> because there was no one else in the whole university that competed at that time. No one had done a show and no one knew anyone that had done a show. And then there was just me, like, on the cross trainer, dieting for my first show. I, genuinely, people just thought I was strange as hell. <laughs> um, but once I had done that first show, I was like, okay, I really, really love this. Um, and, yeah, that's kind of the backstory as to how I, I kind of developed the knowledge that I, that I had yeah. as a base. And I guess at least at Loughborough, you also met Corin there. So it has played a big role in your life. <laughs> I, I met Corinne in the first year and she wouldn't go on a date with me until the very end of second year and then the start <laughs> of third year. She just rejected me for like a year and a half straight, <laughs> but I was persistent. I was like, yes. And then obviously it's our 10 year anniversary this weekend. Oh, amazing. So we've been together for 10 years, which is pretty crazy. Have um, you got anything special planned for that? Well, actually, uh, this Sunday we're we're the lead sponsor for the the British uh, Grand Prix bodybuilding okay. competition. So we have the whole squad of athletes down there for that day. Oh, amazing! And Corin is uh, deep in prep at the moment, so off-plan meals are off. <laughs> so I think um, I think the maximum that we'll do is maybe I don't know. <laughs> say happy 10 years yeah. I mean, as good as it gets i think <laughs> those are some of the best relationships just where the anniversaries aren't the big deal it's the every day and you're supporting yeah. her throughout our prep and everything there so um, yeah yeah uh, it, it's been it's been an interesting 10 years to be honest because when i first met her she'd never even stepped foot in a gym 
Um, and then now she's IFBB pro, like world champion powerlifter, like all time, all fed British record holder. Like, so, so what she's capable of is just, just pretty phenomenal. Mm. Um, which is cool. And some of what we've already been touching on and something I definitely wanted to dig into, and I think the listeners would be disappointed if I didn't, is kind of touching upon some of your philosophies for muscle growth, kind of over your years of training, what are the big things that you're looking at when taking on board a client that you're kind of focused on, whether that be like intensity, volume, technique, these sort of elements? Um, So I would say as I've really matured as a trainer, one of the biggest things that has become evident to me when I kind of reflect on my own philosophies is that I've become less and less married to any one type. Um, I I would say that that's probably the biggest piece of advice that I can give to maybe a trainer in their infancy in that you don't want to create any emotional attachment to any one type of training or any exercise or any nutritional regime that as soon as you start to become um, as soon as you start to become your own ideas in that moment, then you're going to find it difficult really to progress because all of a sudden, each time you learn something, you're going to have to break down basically who you are if you've become that thing. Yeah. <laughs> and, and that can be quite difficult for people. It certainly would have been difficult for the 22, 23-year-old me who just wouldn't have been able to take on that kind of advice, whereas now I'm very, very open-minded. Mm-hmm. Uh, I would say that one of the, the main things that I'm looking at in, when I'm coaching people is just making sure that they're working to their own recovery capabilities. That's just one of the, And then also then being able to manipulate their recovery capabilities to allow them to work at higher capacities than maybe they have previously. And then if we can constantly improve that scenario, we're going to move towards a great physique. So like I'm, I'm really fond of the terms that, that Mike Isretel coined in regards to um, maximal recoverable volume, right. minimal effective volume. Like I think that they're fantastic terms because I hadn't heard previously to him someone using a phrase to kind of coin what, what we're meaning there. Like I've always known what I was capable of doing. And I've always worked very hard to maintain kind of the things that impact my recovery. But I think that that's a fantastic piece of terminology that, he, that he's come up with. I don't think, have you heard of anyone else that have used those phrases in another way? No, I think you're right. Mike's been very good at kind of conceptualizing ideas or things that we know are a thing into an yeah. actual concept. Yeah, so I'm a big fan of Mike for that. Um, so I always credit him when I use those phrases just because they're, they're great phrases. So if we can have someone constantly working at their maximum capacity, then we're going to make great progress. Um, so that's kind of the only thing that I'm looking to do with clients is understanding what is influencing their recovery capabilities. How can I improve that? And then obviously learning to move and contract muscles efficiently. And that's obviously something that someone's going to initially have trouble with. Mm-hmm. And that there's, there's a big difference between moving a weight and contracting a muscle. And again, in my infancy as a trainer, I was obsessed with progressive overload, which I still am. Mm-hmm. But my focus very much would have been just moving a weight from A to B and driving my logbook up, regardless really of any internal stimulus. I never took on board whether they even whether an internal stimulus even existed, mm-hmm. I solely considered the external, 
And that's certainly going to limit you to a certain point when you aren't efficiently recruiting what you're trying to recruit. Because we're always going to run into issues where certain muscle groups are going to take over and certain muscle groups are going to lag. So then again, that would be certainly something that I'm trying to address with my clients is just to reinforce finding a balance between internal and external stimulus. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think it's it's kind of like you said, um, when you're asking Brad about certain things, it's like, well, we're, there's no information on that at the moment or no studies done. And I guess in the later years, there's been studies done on like somewhat technique, but also my muscle connection and those sort of elements within programming. And that's always been a bo- old school bodybuilding kind of thought is like my muscle connection matters. Sure. I think I think where, where bodybuilders have fallen down, though, is that you'll hear some bodybuilders that will tell you the weight doesn't matter. And right. I hate that phrase. I, I loathe it. Like loathe is such a like a, a, an accurate description of that terminology because, as you and I know, mechanical tension is always going to be the leading drive force of hypertrophy. So, sure, our muscles don't know if a way if um, a, a piece of resistance is coming from a cable or a shopping bag, but our body does know that one is heavier than the other, and it will then recruit muscle fibers in suit basically to the maximum it needs to to do that work and if we aren't doing work to force an adaptive response we aren't going to get any adaptation occurring so the weight that you do use certainly does matter mm-hmm. um, so that that's just something that I, I have such a pet hate when i hear that that phrase yeah i think it needs like it's more nuanced than the weight doesn't matter you need to have that so long as you're working to the degree of like relative intensity and you're actually working hard it's mm, not just because sure. obviously you're not going to grow massive legs running a marathon it's just that it's not it's a lot of volume but it's not a high enough uh, intensity of any type so um yeah I, I think that's that's really great and actually something i guess something you've become known for you already mentioned logbooking i don't know if sure. you'd like to talk more on that kind of whether or not you sure. always logbooked and yes. advice for others Yes. So I, I initially, even from the age of 12, I, I was told to have a logbook. I was told to record everything I did in the sessions. And when we would come back into the gym, um, Keith, my coach at the time, would look at what I did on a previous session. And then he would just jot down on a piece of paper, on, on next to it, on a piece of paper and a pencil and say, right, this is what we're hitting today, provided that we can maintain perfect form. And then we'd be like, right, let's nail those. Let's go see in the logbook. And then we'd come back in again. They'd be like, right, this is what we're striving for today. And then over the maybe like however long a period of time it was, we've put 20, 30 kilos on a lift and that additional 30 kilos provided we're in a caloric surplus has then brought about huge changes in musculature. So if you aren't making steps forward in the loads that you're lifting, you really cannot expect to make marked changes to your physique. I mean, when we think about the first time we start training, and the first, let's say the very first first time ever in that first six month period, how quickly we step forward in our lifts is is massive. It's absolutely huge, and then that's really what drives the changes in our physique because again we're, we're creating huge mechanical tension that our body hasn't been exposed to. But at that point, it becomes harder to keep increasing our lifts unless we're being mindful of what we're trying to achieve in every session. So every single session that I go into, I know exactly what I want from that session. The hard part is ensuring that you have controlled every kind of element that could negatively impact your recovery 
that will then cause a detriment in your performance. That's the hard part. Have I had perfect sleep? Have I had perfect hydration? Has my nutrition been excellent? Have I managed my stress? I mean, <laughs> controlling your environment is difficult. And that will then be a big factor into, into how well you're able to progress your lifts. Like over the years, I've become very, very efficient at controlling my environment. Mm -hmm. I know exactly how to go about those things, even to the extent now where I'm really on autopilot in, in regards to my bodybuilding because I never miss meals. I never undersleep. I'm always hydrated. I never miss my vitamins. Like stress, sure, it's creeping in. Now I'm trying to, to do things more from a business perspective. But let's say I have a competition coming up. I will delegate. and I will drop all of that stress off me immediately because I know how important that is to try to try to minimize the impacts that that's going to have on my recovery capabilities. I think what you said there is so important. It's something I've certainly, especially as there's been more information coming out about sleep and everything. And uh, sure. like, I think Matthew Walker, why we sleep kind of talking about how like people are saying uh, six hours of sleep is like for the week or whatever. And it's like, well, actually you're kind of asking for an early deathbed if you end up getting less than six hours sleep. And so I, I <laughs> love, you can't, it's understated. It, it, those, those motivational speeches made me laugh. I, the, I do, I do find them um, quite motivating, but the the idea of like um, you only need four hours to, to to get to be like get what you need to do done. It's like no, that's crazy. Like, like <laughs> I, I think that you would be a much more efficient person if you actually prioritized your sleep. Um, but then I suppose our physique goals are somewhat different, maybe to like absolute business goals, because I think when you hear those kind of motivational speakers, they are you they are usually kind of focusing more on career and business goals. Whereas you would never really hear an athlete talking in that manner. No, yeah, completely. Um, something actually I wanted to touch on, you talked about logbooking and progressive overload. What is your kind of, I guess, main way of progressive overloading for hypertrophy? People hear about kind of double progression, triple progression, or adding sets like Mike um, has kind of pop popularized sure. a bit or adding load, adding reps. What's your kind of favorite way of doing that? So, 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 so my issue with adding sets is that volume is not an infinitely progressible tool so and at some point we will reach an upper limit in terms of our volume that will then take away from our ability to progress our lifts so we have to find a balance in terms of obviously the volume that we can work at without then diminishing returns in our loading that we're trying to achieve so like i will work usually let's say for, i'll take quads for an example i'll try and work at around 10 to 12 working sets for quads a week that will kind of be me at the maximum i can recover from without it taking away from the loading that i'm trying to do so my logbook will feed back to me once i'm working at too much volume so let's say i, I could do 15 16 sets sure it's never going to be an issue but i will then go back in to do my, my main leg session and my lifts will be down so then i immediately know that 15 to 16 sets is a detriment so sure, I've added more total work, but it's not an infinitely progressible tool because I've regressed in the mechanical tension in the moment that I'm able to elicit. And that is not a good move. So you never want to, in my opinion, compromise your maximal loading for more work. And, and um, I, don't, I don't know what the literature says on that. Uh, I don't think I've seen any literature on that specifically, but I mean, anecdotally, I've seen that with a lot of clients and a lot of individuals that then the strongest bodybuilders are always the most muscular 
So then they are certainly not training beyond their recovery capabilities that then lower their loading. So let's say I'm working at in my 10 to 12 sets. I won't necessarily go in with the idea of thinking I'm going to definitely just progress load or definitely progress reps. On, an, on maybe on a certain day, I might take more load and more reps. Mm-hmm. But I, I will always generally micro load. So I'll always be thinking just 1.25 kilos here, 1.25 kilos there, and I might steal a rep as well. So if I go in and all of a sudden over like the space of six to eight weeks, I've put 10 kilos on a lift and I've managed to create two or three reps on that lift as well. That's then a very different looking lift to it was eight weeks ago. And that body part is going to look different. And then let's say I've managed to do that across all my 10 to 11 sets that I do for the week. That's just an incredible run. Like that's a dream run. And that's what I'm trying to create in every run that I do until I create a level of fatigue that I then need to offset by then moving back to maybe four to five sets for a week. I then train at four to five sets, I recuperate, and then ready to go again for another eight to 10 weeks at the maximum work that I can do. And then I'll just pound away at my logbook again. And that's basically how I go. And obviously, I guess when you're, like you said, described, when you're more novice, your progression's just like ridiculous. Um, and now yes. you're micro loading. Are you finding you ever like repeat performance week on week because you're at a level of advancement where you can't take that? Sure. And I guess sure. this is where the technique is really key because people end up destroying technique for load. If, if we then run into a period where it's just going to be maintaining performance, we then, in my situation, I'll then be questioning okay, do I need to increase my caloric intake? Do I need to potentially increase the drugs that I'm using? If it's then a no to both of those, and I'm not going to be able to squeeze out any more lift progressions, I then might consider alternating that exercise to something else and bringing about a novel stimulus from that new movement. So that could even then just be the alteration between a lying hamstring curl to a seated hamstring curl. So we're still looking at isolating the hamstrings, but I know that that change in stimulus is going to then usually step us forward in musculature again. And then I might max out that seated hamstring curl, and then I might move to like a lying dumbbell hamstring curl. And then once maybe I've moved two exercises away, I will then come back to the lying hamstring curl that I initially stalled. I'll look back at my logbook and look where I left that, and I'll think to myself, okay, by the end of this run, I need to be beyond that. Mm-hmm. And I'll just go back to work on that again. So then immediately there across three movements, I've maybe given eight weeks plus a deload, so that's 12, 24, 36. That's 36 weeks worth of work on the isolation work. And then I'm back on the lying hamstring curl again. And if I can keep moving forward in that manner, which I certainly am, it's going to reflect in my hamstring mass. Mm-hmm. Cool. Yeah, I really like that. And inter- everyone's been there where a lift just becomes stale, where it's not really giving you anything. And if anything, it just sure. feels like it's almost beating you up and you're not getting Absolutely. anywhere with it. Um, sure. So as soon as you reset that as well, like neurologically, it feels like a weight that's been taken off your shoulders um, and you're able to get usually better connection again with the muscle. And then you kind of start that process again. And, and that, that tends to work very well. And you touched on actually, well, I guess we're kind of talking a bit about variation, but exercise selection is how do you go about selecting exercises? And I guess to give special credit to like the snatch grip deadlift, um, yeah, sure. currently become fairly popular. It, it seems to have come popular recently. I don't know if it's, it's probably something you've been doing a long time, uh, but I'd love to hear about your kind of thoughts on exercise selection. Um, so, so again, in regards to what I said about like training programming, nutritional programming, 
don't be married to an exercise. I think that I was married to exercises for quite a long period of time. So I, I would sometimes think that the squat was a must-do exercise or the conventional deadlift or the, or the flat barbell bench press are must-do exercises. And I think that quite a lot of people will fall into that fallacy. And, it, and it's incorrect. Um, we don't need to perform movements that don't kind of benefit us in terms of our structure. So if you are a squatter and you cannot effectively load your quads like me, then the barbell squat is going to be a waste of neurological investment that you're better off spending on a hack squat or a leg press. Like there really is no kudos to being a great squatter if your goal is to build great legs. So you need to prioritize what the training goal is. And that's where a lot of people are going to fall down. So my exercise selection is just one that's based around results. So I'm going to just, I'm going to look at the results that certain movements are yielding. And if I feel that I'm getting fantastic response, then I run with them. If I feel like they're really not seeing masses of improvement, then they won't be things that I use. Like open chain exercises are ones that where people are potentially going to struggle because they're more of a skill. And being good at that skill is difficult. It's hard to become autonomous. It's hard to ensure that you're loading the correct muscles. Whereas closed chain movements are going to be very, very simple to bring about hypertrophy. Cool. Yeah, I think the statement of you don't like not being married to anything, like mm. any one, one approach or one exercise. And I think everyone's almost been there, especially as powerlifting became more popular. Everyone's kind of squat, bench, deadlift, got to do all of those three, mm. which I think kind of took away from bodybuilding a little bit. Um, and we touched, I don't know, we haven't really talked about it in terms of like progressing, um, loading and reps. Do you have like a, a rep range that you focus on for hypertrophy or is there any kind of areas you avoid? Not anymore. Um, if I'm honest, like previously I would have been like, okay, there's, there's a hypertrophy rep range. Um, but again, like if you have limitations in regards to rep ranges that you can work in. So let's say, for example, that your joints aren't going to allow for six to seven rep work. Don't work in six to seven rep work. If your fitness capabilities don't allow you to effectively create muscular failure at 20 rep work, for that period of time, whilst you have that as a limiting factor, don't necessarily rely on 20 rep work to step forward. So I like the idea of progressing my lifts across a multitude of rep ranges. So like my training will typically look like I have a load set and then what I term as a back off set. So my loading sets will be in there at the five to nine rep range, provided that individual can safely work there. And then my back off sets will be kind of 10 to 15 reps. And then I'll then have a third rep range that I work in that will then be 20 to 30 reps. And then in a given session on every body part, there will be sets to failure across all three of those rep ranges. Mm -hmm. Now let's say an individual does have fitness issues that's okay because we haven't then relied on 20 to 30 rep work to induce hypertrophy. We've done loading sets, we've done back off sets, and then we're working towards improving their fitness by incorporating the 20 to 30 rep work. And if they're able to progress their lifts and if they're able to dig in in sets, their fitness is going to get better. And it's only going to be a short period of time until they're then actually reaching muscular failure in that rep range. Um, like, as you know, like we know that muscular failure, even in those higher rep ranges, is going to recruit maximal amounts of muscle fibers. We're going to reach that point where our body will grab onto everything it can, provided it's true muscular failure. Um, so there's certainly no harm in, in working across all rep ranges. Mm -hmm. The only thing that I would typically avoid as a bodybuilder 
is just lifting really, really heavy. Just lifting singles, doubles, trebles. That, sure, they're going to recruit everything you have, mm. but the amount of total work that would need to be done to kind of allow you to step forward is going to be a lot. And then that neurological investment is not worth it at all. The kind of, I guess it's uh, this, to talk about Mike Israel again, the stimulus to fatigue ratio, something he's talked about again, he's putting words to things we know and it's kind of giving you... Stimulus to fatigue ratio is beautiful. That's perfect. I've I've not heard that one. Um, That's nice. I like it. And actually, I guess, because you talked about kind of taking things to failure, and this is something that has become, I guess, there's some people that really like taking things to failure. And obviously, Eric Helms has done a lot of work with RPEs and to leaving some reps in reserve and things. And what's your perspective there? Obviously, you take things to failure, kind of, sure. I'd love to hear your kind of, what's your um, rationale? Like, this is probably going to be the only place in my training where I probably do have a bias. Right because I just love training to failure. Like I, I don't want to leave a rep in reserve. <laughs> I, I want to fucking go there because that's probably the most fun part of my day right there in that moment. Um, the instances where I might have someone leave something in reserve, it could be from a safety perspective if we're trying to accumulate a certain amount of volume and if they take those sets all the way there and mechanically they start to break down, they're not going to be able to accumulate the volume that we might want to do. So then leaving maybe an RP of like 8 out of 10 set 1, 9 out of 10 set 2, 10 out of 10 set 3 might be a really great way to go about it mm-hmm. um, as opposed to 10 out of 10, 10 out of 10 because it's hard to do. Um, the way that I program in regards to to training more on the lower end of volume, that's because the difficulty of the sets that I do are 10 out of 10. So like when I say that I do 10 sets of quads a week, someone might think that that number is quite low, but that's 10 out of 10, that's 10 sets that are at 10 out of 10 RPE. And then when you consider that, that's then a bit of a game changer. Mm-hmm. Because sure, I could do 20 sets at like maybe seven or eight out of 10, and I could probably recover from that as well. But what would be interesting for me, and I actually don't know the answer, is what would yield more progression? Would 10 to 11 sets out of 10 out of 10 be more optimal compared to 15 to 20 sets leaving reps in reserve? I don't know. I don't know the answer. Um, I, 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 I couldn't tell you. It's, I, I'm not sure if there's been literature done on someone that's as strong as me. No way. <laughs> um, so I, from, from a scientific perspective, I couldn't give you an answer either way so then what is maybe going to come down to is preference um and then obviously in that situation my preference is, is to go to failure like i'd be intrigued to know what kind of eric's perspective on that would be because i actually don't know right um I, I don't know what he would say uh it would be an interesting one but it's, it's not one that i'm actually going to try mm-hmm. um because I, I i love training the way i do yeah um well, I guess what was it with even with Eric's muscle and strength pyramids, like adherence is his like number one. So it's like if, cool. you, if you're not going to enjoy it, you're not going to adhere to it. Absolutely. I mean, yeah, adherence is, is, is the be all and end all really. And something actually, I guess it's related to this completely is I think I heard you coin the term pivotal reps. Sure. Uh, is that kind of yeah linked to this? Um, so the idea of pivotal reps is that let's say we take a muscle to failure. And then in a rest pause fashion, we only rest 
15 seconds, and then we take that same weight to failure again. Now, we know that when we've taken the first set to failure, it was only those last few reps that maybe grabbed every muscle fiber we have. So then after that short rest period, if we were to go again, we know then that we're going to perform three to four reps that are going to be what we could say pivotal reps. They're going to be reps that challenge every muscle fiber we have. So if we're in a position where our recovery is just incredible, where we're flying and we're making such good progress, we could then insert smartly pivotal reps onto two or three sets, which then could step us forward even more. So they're not adding full sets in terms of volume, but they are adding more failure points to our session. And they're failure points that are solely prioritizing every muscle fiber being grabbed. So that's why I caught back. These are the pivotal reps. These are the ones that matter. Okay. Um, the thing is, is that, and, and what I'm trying to explain to people is that you can't use these training techniques all the time. You can't expect to recover from that kind of work all the time. Like I wouldn't use that kind of technique in a caloric deficit. I wouldn't kind of use that technique in a period where my anabolics are low. Like those would be, those would be in, a, in a kind of a window of opportunity where everything is just amazing. And I think to myself, I could eke out a bit more here. Um, whether the most, whether the majority of people would even need a stimulus like that, it's hard to say. Because, like, let's say we take a ten rep hack squat to absolute failure, something that was just fucking crazy, ten out of ten RPE, right? You wrapped it, and then you took fifteen seconds, and then you tried to grind out another two or three reps. Like that is really, really, really demanding work. Most people kind of mentally aren't even going to be able to do it. But there are individuals that are and that have made progress because of that. And I feel that that, in those individuals, is a more useful tool than increasing our number of sets like maybe Mike would do. Right. So I would rather use pivotal reps than increase a whole set. Yeah, I think in especially for someone like yourself, there's just never going to be a study on that population. There's never going to be no. looking at it. So when these rationales come out that you've, kind of coined there i think you can't really say no or kind of and you can say yes i guess because obviously you're progressing so um, yeah. something's obviously working there i think that one of the things that like kind of that we all have a very good understanding of is that our recovery capabilities are our limiting factors to everything yeah and this is what is important to try to get most people to understand is that they need to un they need to know like they need to know where their energy balance is and they need to know what volume they can work at. And once they have those kind of things in their mind, their ability to manipulate those numbers up and down is what's going to bring about a great physique. But the problem is, is that like, even on my log today, someone said to me on my site, like, oh, I, I, I'm, I'm trying to use the diet app to try to work out what my macros are. And, and I, to us, that's a very simple thing. It's like, well, just track your food for two or three days you then know what your caloric intake is to maintain your body weight. Let's go straight in at one gram per pound of protein. Whatever you have left calorie-wise, divide up between fats and carbs based on preference. Like that is so simple, but it's quite difficult to get kind of the majority of people to understand how to even go about determining their energy balance. Mm -hmm. So then when they can't determine that, how can we get them to understand their recovery capabilities? Mm -hmm. So this is kind of what it all boils down to. And, and I was in Ireland this weekend, and that was what my seminar was on, was just understanding your recovery capabilities. 
because I think it's just one of the most important things to better make progress. Absolutely. I, I think that's a really good point. And actually to talk a bit more about recovery, is there any like uh, the things you're more, maybe for yourself and even clients, are there things you're monitoring kind of um, to try and get an awareness of that? Um, so I don't, with my clients, monitor things like um, heart rate variability. I, 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 they're not they're not things that I pay attention to really because for the level of clientele that I'm coaching, if some of them come back to me and they're coming back with their heart rates being maybe a little bit over and I tell them rest today, don't train today. Let's say they're four weeks out from a show. They're going to turn around and tell me to fuck off <laughs> in short. Um, I think that those are useful tools to give maybe the mass population some kind of feedback to understand how they can monitor their own recovery capabilities. But with the clients that I work with, most of the time I'm using their logbook as their feedback tool. That's, that's, that's for me is telling me everything because they get on a run where their lifts are flying and all of a sudden they slow down or they regress. As soon as they get a lift regression, that's a big red flag. That's like, okay, something's wrong. Let's listen to this. And until we get to that moment, let's keep pushing. Let's keep pushing. Let's keep pushing. Let's keep pushing. Like, but obviously what we're striving for is extreme and, and incredible levels of performance. Now, I suppose you could argue that you might rather deload before you reach that point um, to rather keep moving forward. I mean, it's a great argument, but it's not one that I use. I, I with myself and with Corinne and all the pros that I work with, we push right to the limit. And then we listen to that, that logbook. We listen to the kind of the communication in the terms of the, when my guys or girls turn around to me and go, Jordan, I'm fucked. <laughs> yeah. And I know that they're fucked. Like, because they don't say that to me unless they get to this point. Corinne actually had a funny chat on, um, on one of our, our sessions the other day that was filmed. And that basically we have a scale of like, are you fucked or are you proper fucked? <laughs> and that's basically how we decide our recovery capabilities. That sounds like such a meathead thing to say. <laughs> and it is, and I love it. Because there are some aspects where I, we will just resort back to meathead behavior. Because sometimes it takes that to really get to where you want to be. Um, so obviously listen to your body, but just let your logbook be your biggest, your biggest feedback tool. Yeah, I, I really like that perspective. Uh, we don't track like heart rate variability and these sort of tools right now. Um, like you said, I think there's free ways to gather that sort of data from your clients. Sure. Um, like I, the, I guess the, I literally just interviewed someone recently and they talked about like session RPEs. So out of 10, how hard was a session? I guess your oh. fucked measurement is just a, a, a yeah. different way of suggesting the same sort of thing. Basically, yeah. <laughs> and we spoke a little bit about calories there and sure. I'd love to dig into like nutritional perspectives for gaining sure. muscle maybe size okay. of surplus gaining rate what kind of you do there okay so um with myself some of my own nutritional setups more evolve around my digestion so for me a nutrient timing approach allows me to better utilize my food like i i, I felt that in the way that my performance and the way that that's then reflected in my physique has kind of has come about so if I was to spread my kind of macros evenly through the day, if I have carbohydrates in meal one, possibly because I'm maybe not as well hydrated or that I'm just not like as awake or whatever factor is influencing that, my digestion of carbohydrates in that moment is not great. 
So I just remove carbohydrates from that meal. And then if I have carbohydrates in the meal before I train, I feel sluggish or bloated during the training session. So again, I don't have carbohydrates in that meal. Like if they've digested well with me, I would have them there because I, I, I don't really care where they come in the day. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I, I don't really feel that you're going to get much difference if you place your carbohydrates before or after the workout. Um, but just from, from that perfect digestion, if I have those low carbohydrate meals, they feel great for me. And then as soon as I finish my training session, I feel like I'm able to digest carbohydrates better. And that's not for lack of trying either. So that's certainly mm-hmm. not a bias. Like I, I have periods where I'm like, let's try and reintroduce it again because now my digestion might be better. And then it just isn't. Um, so I always have to end up reverting back to the kind of the way that works for me. Um, with my clients, I base it a lot around their schedule, where they can fit certain meals in, where they feel happiest eating certain meals. Mm-hmm. Um, that, Again, obviously, adherence being key. From, from a nutritional perspective, I would say adherence is even more important than training. Right. Like, if you go in and you do some kind of training, you're going to get results. If your adherence to your diet is poor, really, you could see very little to no progress at all, especially from, like, a fat loss perspective. Like, we're really going to see nothing. So placing foods and certain food types – that just allow for that adherence is kind of just the goal. So that just comes down to communication and just understanding their needs and then making sure that their needs are workable within what we're trying to achieve. Mm-hmm. And then in terms of, obviously you talked about like one gram per pound of protein, is that how you kind of, and then setting fats and carbohydrates preference, is that how you generally go about it? I would, I would say so, yeah. Like it, it, I don't feel like it needs to be any more complicated than that. Mm-hmm. Like I feel that that approach gets superb results um i I don't know whether you feel differently Uh, what's your your stance so personally i think i agree absolutely you can get fantastic results i don't think there's any evidence strong evidence to suggest like there's no studies on it i have a preference towards higher carbs and lower fats just because carbohydrates are our main fuel for recovery for training um so that tends to be my perspective but again if preference is not that i wouldn't go that route like that's certainly where all of my diets end up looking. Right. Um, it, it's, it's, it always pans out that way. But like, but if for some reason they were just like, I really love fats in that meal. I, I really feel better on fats in that meal. I'm going to give them fats. Yeah. Um, so it, it, it's just understanding, again, like basically what it falls back to is energy balance. Um, and then obviously within food selection, I'm always going to prioritize nutrient dense choices um like i don't like i like lane norton so i'm never gonna have a dig at him he's a much smarter chap than me and he's not someone that i fancy kind of having any kind of disagreement with because he'll he'll pull me apart all over the places but i i don't like the idea of giving my clients gummy worms or, or whatever he posted the other day right um i feel like we can of course i totally agree with him that it's not going to impact in regards to energy balance. But what we could be doing in its place is making a smarter choice that could proactively influence recovery. Something that is going to be maybe higher in micronutrients or have a higher anti-inflammatory effect. So although sure, we could eat gummy bears and lose fat, that isn't going to be 
the ideal choice that I would have for my clients mm -hmm. with the goals that we're trying to achieve. Cool. Yeah, I think I was going to ask about kind of food composition, I guess. Um, so that's sure. really interesting to hear that. And uh, in regards to the surplus uh, or rate of gain, do you have any kind of goals for that or do you look at anything uh, to I, establish it? It's very person dependent. So I'm, I'm if, if I creep someone's calories up, and then I'm really not impressed by the, the, the way their composition changes, I'm going to have to be a lot more patient. Because what this really tells me is that that individual potentially is a non-responder to, to the training, or maybe just doesn't train as hard as I was hope, hoped that they would train. So then you have to just be incredibly patient at the rate at which you feed them. Right. Whereas you'll then have some individuals that will just utilize their food so effectively. James Hollingshead is an incredible example of this. You start to feed him in an off-season, and because James is an absolute animal, he will push up to 280, 290, and he will still be lean because he trains so hard. So everything that you give him, he's clearly just utilizing efficiently. Sure, there's some genetic component there, which is allowing him to build muscle at a certain rate relative to fat. I, I understand that there is a massive genetic component there, but equally, James is one of the hardest working trainers I've ever come across. Mm -hmm. um, and that then makes it not so much a coincidence. There's certainly a correlation to what's going on there. So then it just comes down to learning how people change and then manipulating accordingly. I love that. And I think from what I've taken away from you, at least today, is kind of being open-minded, individualization, preference adherence like these big things that i think a lot of people jump at. like there's been a meme recently where people are jumping to the top of the stairs and they're missing all the middle and these are a lot sure. of the things people should be focusing on within the middle rather than jumping ahead to volume 100%. or intensity or whatever it might be yeah for sure and again then we can even come down to like looking at supplementation as well mm -hmm. like we, we sell supplements but we would never encourage someone to buy our supplements if they're not in the position to kind of benefit from them mm -hmm. Like you do not need intra-workout carbohydrates or intra-workout amino acids or even necessarily a pre-workout if you haven't been able to master your nutrition. <laughs> like, and that's coming from someone that's trying to make a business from selling those things. I love that. I would much prefer that you just saved your money for a decent bit of salmon and you had a coffee before you trained. And then you just learn that the better you adhere and the better you – I tell my clients to just tick boxes. Yeah. I'm like, be so, be so perfect and be so analytical in what you do that tick all the little boxes. And once you've ticked all those boxes, we then get down to the kind of the minutia that might be nutrient timing, that might be intra-workout nutrition. And then those are the things that are going to kind of take you that last 5%. But until we get to that point, we don't want to miss out the stairs in the middle, like you just said. Mm. Fantastic. And as a, I guess, a final question I'm going to get to you is, uh, in terms of like, I guess the last few years or months, even what are the biggest things that maybe you've changed your mind on or changed your perspective on? And if there is nothing, then there's nothing, but I'd be interested. Uh -huh. in that. So I, I would say the biggest thing for me in the last few months, maybe hasn't been a change in the way that I view nutrition or training. I think the biggest change for me is just becoming more aware of self-development. And I think that as a trainer, if you want to become a better trainer, you need to constantly be able to display empathy and to be able to communicate and show passion in what you do. And I think that if you're someone that maybe struggles with those things, if you look to improve your self-development, if you're able to reflect 
on what you're doing in a more efficient manner, that is going to step you forward a lot. And I would say in the last six months, that has been my, my focus in the last six months hasn't been on improving my nutritional knowledge or my training knowledge. I, I, ha, I really ha, I'm not actually that up to scratch right now on any of the recent literature mm -hmm. because my, my kind of focus aside from watching more rugby recently, which has actually mm -hmm. been really fun, has been just focusing on self-development and just focusing on listening and reading certain things that are going to allow me to be more reflective, which allow me to be a better person, which then allow me to, I, I, it's such a, it's such a overused phrase, but to serve people better. Yeah. Um, and I think that once you get yourself into that position, you, you're going to be, you're, you're going to be happier and your clients are going to be happier. Mm -hmm. I, I completely agree. I think this comes down to like the qualities of a coach. And I think the those are the top priority before any of the other things if you, you could sure. have all the knowledge all the experience but if you can't actually help people because you can't relate to them or you can't communicate effectively you're going to be nowhere absolutely cool so i think that's everything i've wanted to cover today um i think we might have to drag you back on if you would jordan but uh, i think Anytime. it would be an absolute pleasure awesome let's see what get me back in on a discussion where you have mike on as well and then we could bat around some uh, some training volume discussions, and that would be awesome. Hey, if you're suggesting it, I'm not going to say no. <laughs> I, I, I love to learn from him as well. So it would be kind of a borderline discussion, borderline, let's have a little mini lecture with Mike and see how much he can teach us. Cool. Yeah, we can. Have, that can be a bit of a cliffhanger, but I also want to let people know where, if they want to reach out to you or find out more of your stuff, you talked about the member site and everything, where's the best sure. place? So um, Corin and I run trainbyjp.com, which is our member site. Um, we're at 5,000 members, um, which hopefully kind of instills some faith that if 5,000 people are prepared to invest in the site, that we have some fairly decent stuff on there. So if you are interested in bodybuilding, I can confidently say that the site will help you. Um, it, I don't necessarily think that if you're kind of like an everyday kind of type population person that just wants to improve their health or just improve their well-being or their look, it's probably not going to be the best site for you. Uh, it, it is quite bodybuilding focused. So if your fo focus is bodybuilding, you're going to enjoy it. Um, and then aside from, and then once you're on that site, you can then reach the rest of the stuff we do. You can reach us to contact us in regards to coaching and whatnot. Fantastic. And I, I recommend if people aren't willing yet to invest in that, at least follow Jordan over on Instagram, uh, always putting up inspirational lifts that make you feel like you don't lift anything. So it's always, and great form. So it's fantastic to see. Cool. Thank you guys for watching and listening in. Thank you, Jordan, for being on and we'll talk to you Thank soon. You. Thanks, guys.